I V M. Welcome to All Things Policy, a daily podcast supported by Pragati, a flagship media initiative of the Takshashila Institution. We're a bunch of policy nerds based in Bengaluru, and we like to bring a fresh perspective to Indian affairs and an Indian perspective to global affairs. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and join us for today's chat. Hello and welcome to All Things Policy. My name is Rohan Seth, and I am here with Pratik Bagre and Sapni Jee Krishna. We've got an interesting episode lined up for you guys. Just a couple of announcements before we go into that. Firstly, I would like to say that if you're interested in the kind of stuff that we do at All Things Policy and at Takshila, consider signing up for our courses. We do specializations in public policy, tech and policy, and defense and foreign affairs. So please check out the courses. The details are going to be in the show notes. You can use the link to go to the website. And secondly, and this is a little more personal as an update, but this happens to be my last episode of All Things Policy. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you guys. I have a confession to make here. I generally don't have anything to add or to say. Uh, and Pratik, Sapni, and over the years, Manoj, Anirudh, etc. have made me look good. So thank you, uh, all of you for listening. And to Pratik and Sapni, of course. And uh, Sapni, do you also want to add into this? Yeah, I also would like to add into this that this also happens to be my last episode probably of on ATV for at least for a considerable future. I think it'll be the last episode and it was an absolute pleasure being here with Rohan and Pratik mostly, but alongside I've had great conversations with people within and outside Takshiva and it's been an absolute pleasure to have this opportunity. Having gotten that. So the next few episodes are going to be me talking to myself. Huh? <laughs> uh, information ecologist 63 to 65 available on all things policy going forward. <laughs> but yeah, on a serious note, thanks uh, everyone for listening in and so on. But let's now talk about why we are here. Let's talk about tech policy. So we've had some excellent reporting by Al Jazeera. There's a four-part series by reporters, Collective and Adwatch and Al Jazeera. And Pratik, why don't you give us some context into this? Yeah, thanks. Ron. So, absolutely right. As you said, it's a, it's a very important series that, you know, done by the, the three organizations that sort of came together to look at the political ads on Facebook in India, right? And I think this is the type of important investigative series that we need going forward, especially because, you know, and I, I, I think I said this multiple times on this podcast, right, that we definitely need a better understanding of the advertising ecosystem or the ad tech ecosystem in India, right? This is an important first step, uh, first step there. I'll, I'll add a disclaimer because I, you know, through the episode, I will point out uh, some issues that I had, some quibbles that I had with it. But overall, I think the the point is that we need such research and I hope this kicks off, you know, more follow-up investigation and more follow-up collaboration between investigative journalists and researchers. Now, coming to the series itself, right? Uh, like I said, it's four part talk. I, I won't go into exactly what every article said. I really believe that folks should go out there and read it and form their own opinions of uh, what they think of the arguments and the hypothesis that that have been presented, but broadly you can look at it as the four stories in, in two parts, right? Uh, the first two talk about surrogate or ghost advertisers in the context of political ads on Facebook in India, and the next two are more about Facebook systems for targeting these political ads. Right, Sabine, uh, do you want to add anything? I think that's a very clear context that Pratik has laid out, and I think I really urge the listeners to actually go and spend some time reading these pieces because I think that would help them form a better opinion and not be clouded by if any are such means. Right. 
I would say there's a bunch of stuff that's really interesting here. So there's stuff about how you can draw the wrong lesson from this. You can talk about a bunch of stuff like bulk pricing, volume discount. There's a lot of meat actually that we can get into. So let's sort of begin with parts one and two of this, right? So the first two stories are about surrogate or ghost advertisers and then you've got the Facebook system. So pretty tell us a little bit about the first two stories. Yeah, and just for context, for framing the way, you know, I think what we're trying to do is rather than go into it story by story, we're just trying to understand the underlying issue that they sort of brought up. Right now, if you, as I said, right, the first two largely highlight the presence of this surrogate advertising ecosystem for political ads, which is to say that you, know, you have advertisers posting content in favor of political parties without clearly disclosing any connection or affiliation to them. Right, and now what the series essentially says that in the context of of the Bharatiya Janata Party, this network of surrogate advertisers essentially doubled their doubled the type of the views that the ad got right so you know their own official ads plus through this network that they sort of attributed or they attempted to attribute was about 1.3 billion billion views each right the point to note and you know this as I was reading through this one thing that struck me was that when we have a sense of a number of views and those are certainly large numbers I think a limitation of the data that Facebook makes available is that we don't get a sense of how many people it may have reached so so we don't really know what combination of these views were repeatedly targeting the same set of people or reaching new audiences. We don't have that distinction. We can't really make any judgment based on that. The, the other thing to note, I think, so as, as far as I can tell, I don't think surrogate ads or regional parties were part of the part of the investigation that happened. And the ones you know, related to the Indian National Congress seemed uh, minuscule by, by comparison. Although I think the, the authors do note that some of this may have to do with coordinated inauthentic behavior-related takedowns that uh, Facebook, you know, uh, took in sometime in 2019. I, I'm a little fuzzy on the exact dates there, right? But, you know, so there's that element to it, right? In terms of the, the type of views that it has uh, are effectively doubling the footprint. But like I said, the, the other thing to keep in mind, I think, you know, I think this is the one thing for us to note, you know, while we have, while we have a sense of the views and the views have expanded, I think what future research should look at is the connection between people viewing it and people getting persuaded by something, right? Because I think that's an area of, this is, of course, in the context of political ads and I think for required for content in, in general, right? Like when you view a post, what percent, you know, how seriously do you take it? How much, what role does it play in convincing people? Can you do that at a single post, even the series of posts, et cetera? I think where, where, where I'm always pointing to lack of research, so this is just an, yet, yet another area, right? I think that's another area where uh, we do need, I think, a better understanding in the Indian context. The, the other thing that I was, that was interesting to note in this that was that there seems to be, it's hard to say how far this is strategic or how far this is driven by just trying to get a gate. But you know, it seemed like the political content was mixed with non-political informational content, etc. as well, right? And this has some overlaps with a, with a recent paper by by Kiran Derimela and, and Simon Shoshard. And apologies, Simon, I'm probably mispronouncing your last name if you're listening, right? But that was about content in... Uh, what were essentially booth-level party-administered WhatsApp groups in UP, right? And then they did it for uh, groups that were administered by the BJP and a bunch of other parties as well, right? And even that, even in that context, they found that I think more than half the content was seemed like it was, it was not really, you know, not really partisan based on how they were coded by the researchers. And the overall prevalence of false information and and hateful content were actually in the low single-figure percentages, which. You know, from what you hear, it seems like that's lower than what you might have expected. But it's also important to note that, you know, we don't really have anything to benchmark this. Like, we don't really know if that low, you know, what are the effects of even the low single figure percentages that that study 
found. And you know, whether whether that's good, that's bad. What role it plays in persuading people? What role it has on you know on what what larger societal effects? Has. We we don't really know that. But it's still worth noting that you know it, it seemed to be like in the low uh, low single figures. I digress a little bit, but yeah, those are my observations from the bits about the the ones about the you know the, the surrogate ads. Right, that's extremely interesting. I want to sort of delve a little deeper into this and also on the second, the third and fourth stories. But before we do that, let's take a quick commercial break. Hi, welcome back. I'm here with Pratik and Sapni and we're talking about political advertising in India. And it's a fascinating conversation. Sapni, I want to bring you in and maybe we should talk about some of the stuff that Pratik laid out in the first half. I think it's a little point that we often seem to be sort of missing, even with the study that Pratik had mentioned, is how identity formation is a crucial part to influencing. So there are two things. One, I think I would refer back to this the study. I'm not really sure when it came out sometime in 2018 or 19, where I think a BuzzFeed reporter actually did a personal essay on how, when the particular person sort of created a new profile on Facebook and ended up subscribing to few subscribing slash following few certain accounts, certain pages, which were of a certain particular viewpoint. Mostly, I think in that particular case, they were looking at instances of accounts which were very pro-Hindutva or mildly pro-Hindutva or through a range of those of being towards the right in India because similar studies have been happening outside India as well and where the reporter by the end of their personal essay they come to a conclusion that even though I was very sure about where my ideology stood by the end of it I had started becoming a skeptic of my own ideologies and my own principles. So I think probably we will have to Take care. As Pratik said, we do not have a benchmark of how much something can influence us. And that is where I think this whole idea of identity formation becomes very crucial. So even if we look at the WhatsApp ecosystem where, you know, even if it's in like very minimal percentages of having highly inflammatory content, the rest of it also contributes the rest of the content. So a lot of it would be like local politics, very local, hyper-local politics of maybe of religious issues, maybe even things as, as small as you know, waste segregation related issues, which I've seen in various studies, where all of that also contributes to the conversation and the trust building exercise that happens from the influx of that is forms part of the influx of content that comes from a motivated party. So in given that context, the idea that a lot of surrogate advertising happens and how how the, the report has identified the ecosystem around surrogate investigation, surrogate advertisement happening. It's it's vital that such investigations take place so that we also understand where our laws sort of are not being able to play catch up because something like this in the physical world probably would be meted out with better protections. We would have better protections under the representation of the People's Act, etc. But obviously we know the the equivalent for that for social media regulation is a is self-regulation. It's nothing more than that. It's a the code of conduct, ECI's uh, social media code of conduct, which also and and where obviously there was a set of empowerment of the citizen that was happening through. I guess that in two thousand nineteen, at least during the elections, the parliamentary elections, I think it was called the the C Vigil app, and this particular app, where all of these measures are again 
these are measures sort of pushed for by these platforms themselves where they do not have exact ideas of how to go about this. So even, I mean, while I, I understand and I agree totally that, you know, when we look at over-regulating, when we have the risk of over-regulating and when we have the chance that we are giving the pattern back to the same people we probably are accusing of being lax and being harming our electoral politics, the absence of these systems and the sort of lobbying power that these platforms have over our electoral systems are also should also be of concern for us. Yeah, I, I just want to build on, build on that. Right? I think there, there's a very clear enforcement gap of sorts, right, from Facebook perspective, in the sense that, you know, when you, and this, and this is just my take, right, but when you are earning money or when you are, when there's a, you know, when there's a financial transaction involved, I think the, the burden of enforcement is higher, right? And it's a little clearer than it is in terms of the speed, right? Which can tend to be a little, little fuzzy, right? So when you have, you know, when you have uh, people who are declaring, you know, uh, as the investigation found out, right? In certain cases, the the, the websites that, that were listed were, were not working and stuff like that, right? I think those were things that could have been potentially filtered and, and caught, right? Through some sort of uh, enforcement process. Of course, it would not have completely solved the underlying issue here. Yeah? But it could have certain, you know, I think it, it could go some way in at least making this harder to do, right? Uh, it, it's already going to be an adversarial space, but you don't have to make it, you know, absolutely easy for people to game the system. This way. Right. Let's sort of now take a moment to look at stories three and four. So, Pratik, you know, take us to those. Yeah, I think those were interesting in it. And this is where it started to get a little fuzzy for me, but purely because there's so much underlying systems, uh, system work. But the main assertion, right, that I gathered was that, look, you know, on average, it seemed like the, the National Congress had to pay about 30% more for the same number of views, right, for these political ads as the BJP did in, in 9 out of 10 elections that they reviewed. And the second was the hypothesis is that it's based on the type of content, right, maybe, you know, divisive content that uh, the surrogates had also contributed to, which, which from Facebook's perspective, maximizes engagement and those are their incentives, uh, which led to lower prices. Right now, you know, let's take a step back. Right? And there are potentially a bunch of reasons for which, you know, why advertiser A can get different prices than, than advertiser B, right? For example, so it could be, okay, you know, maybe there's, there's bulk pricing or some sort of volume discounts baked in there, right? Maybe they just know how to target their ads more, more cost effectively. Maybe they're just less concerned with the, with the quality of targeting, right? Not really optimizing for relevance to, to some extent, you know, the, I've listed three reasons, four reasons, unfortunately, like a super set of, of, you know, lot of possibilities because, like I said, we're dealing with a very complex and opaque system that we don't really know. So the part four also linked to an investigation, similar investigation that the markup had done. And that seems to imply, you know, that seems to say that, look, Facebook doesn't offer bulk discounts, right? So the number of ads should not affect the, the pricing that they get. So effectively, I think it, you know, you, you could say effectively that rules out the first possibility. And the other thing that it points out, and I think this is where it gets, where it gets interesting and fuzzy at the same time is that so normally you'd expect options to you know the way options work you normally expect it to go up to the highest bidder right but it seems that Facebook's policies allow for situations where a low bid can win the option and you know get it added inserted into a user's timeline if it determines that engagement is more likely right again you can just see the level of opacity here right how do they determine it'll have more engagement what type of content gets more engagement for you know for price differences under this under where this would happen, right? Uh, so, by this doesn't rule out, I think, the other, you know, two and three that I had listed, that I had mentioned earlier, it, it does create this 
some ground for that hypothesis, right? That maybe it's the device of content that tends to be popular, which has higher incentives uh, with, you know, from Facebook's perspective that led to the to the cheaper occupier rate, right? Again, I, I want to go back to to the point that what we can get is really a sense that these were inserted more often and we don't know, naturally know that if it was inserted in timelines of a wider number of users, right? That, uh, we, of course, with, you know, with, with the numbers and the delta that, uh, that I mentioned earlier, it, it seems logical to conclude that it reached more people, but, you know, to how, how that split was, how that split happened, we, we, don't really, we don't really know. That's quite interesting. Sapni, do you want to add to that? I think something that stood out for me is the fact that how that ecosystem can sort of operate with the bot-based engagement that happens on these platforms, right? And that's not limited to Facebook, but it can happen on most other platforms. So I'm still looking for answers into how does independent individual political parties having, I don't think, I, I personally did not get an answer for this question. How do individual political parties and their presence on these platforms through bots, which obviously I think it's a public secret right now that most political parties do use bots to sort of amp up their engagement. And I, I think we remember we've also done an episode previously on the XOG, you know, those revelations that, that happened a few months back, which all of us right now seem to have forgotten. So that sort of also, I think, might also contribute to this algorithmic problem that we have. And I think, obviously, I do think that optimization metrics that work within these algorithms, that is something that, and the technical ability to sort of understand a lot of these things is something companies as well as regulatory bodies need to invest in. Because I don't think it's it's very sustainable to go on with this conversation of having absolutely no understanding of how this happens will work in the favor of the larger public in the longer run. So I think things like when we are talking about, and this is something we've mentioned on and off multiple times through previous episodes, how we should look at more transparency from algorithms, things like social audits and independent audits. These can can maybe provide us more answers than than the context that we have right now. So, and such investigations do point to the necessity of having such such understanding. And maybe also that could then lead to one better regulation and to better social, maybe I'm not 100% sure about this, but maybe better, better social activity of these platforms. Right. I'm conscious that we've got a limited amount of time left. So, Pratik, why don't I come to you for concluding thoughts? Yeah, sure. I'll try to keep this quick bunch of points to make, right? I think one thing that's important is from, you know, from such an investigative phase is not to necessarily draw the, the wrong conclusion, right? Yeah. And I think I'd caution against the takeaway from this being that, hey, my favorite party lost because, you know, lost the election completely because of this, right? And I think I think that's something to keep in mind because it points to a larger issue that divisive content is popular to begin with. So, you know, if tomorrow, if all parties get the same same rates for ads, will election result change significantly? You know, you'll have to be uh, a very adventurous better to make that, adventurous gambler, sorry, to make that, uh, to take that bet, right? The the other difficulty that this throws up, right, and uh, the thing that we sort of alluded to this earlier is that it put us in an impossible situation of how to get control over this, right? Because, you know, the 
one takeaway from this is that yes, we need some sort of regulatory uh, enforcement, right? But you're going back, uh, you're essentially going back to the fact that you know the same institutions that we say are not are not doing their jobs to fill in that gap, right? Or you're looking at you know companies who time and time again have failed to do these sort of things uh, to make their systems better and and to get their enforcement act together, right? So there's that angle to it. Another possible takeaway is that hey, look, you know maybe people say ban political ads, right? And I think that's uh, another thing, right? Uh, you know, as as general thing, actually, right? We, we say that okay, look, ban don't tend to work, right? They're hard to enforce. And in the few instances that you know political ads have been banned, I think there was this instance, I think in Washington State, right? Because I think they have uh, pretty strict campaign finance laws where political ads are not allowed, and the political candidates they tend to say that look, it favors the incumbent because of that. So yeah, so there's that. Right. Thanks. Um, Sapni, do you have any? I think it's just that oh, I mean, gaming of political and the electoral systems have been happening for some time and we acknowledge that, but a lot of it becomes hot takes. So I think such investigations sort of, you know, will hopefully nudge towards us understanding multiple nuances that are there when we when we talk about the much gaped political I mean, electoral system that we have right now. So and the broader context of things, we should also be worried about, you know, making healthier choices as regulators, as companies, as, you know, en- as people who engage with the system. There's a lot to be done and hot takes won't help. So that's something we should be cognizant of. So, so okay, I, I know you already went to be a final thought, but I just had a few more thoughts <laughs> come in again. Uh, very quickly, right, in terms of what kind of research, you know, we should maybe hope to have. And I think I've said this in, in bits and pieces thought, but I just want to re- reiterate these, you know, at, at the end, right, which is about, look, I think we need more research about the ad tech space in general, right? Then the point about the link between views and persuasion, right, how that works, I think we definitely need an understanding of that, both in the context of ads and in context. We certainly need more research of how Facebook's ad pricing mechanism works because it, this concept of how, how the auctions work with relevant ads being able to supersede placement, etc. I think that's certainly something we need to understand. I'd also be curious to see if, you know, how this surrogate advertising system works in case of regional parties. I don't think we've had any research on that front. And I think what hopefully follow-up investigation should also cover is, you know, if, if there is a way for some sort of clearer attribution, right, of the surrogate, surrogate advertisers, also, because in certain cases, you know, you had cases where it listed a party headquarters as the address, right? Now, that's not necessarily definitive proof, right? But this is the kind of stuff that, you know, when you have these investigations that other outlets pick it up, go and do follow-up investigation then, and then prove those links, right? Or, or find more links. And I think we haven't seen that happening in this case. I, I'll stop there. Right. Thanks, both of you. I think this has been an extremely enlightening podcast. I learned a lot. I'm sure, dear listener, you have as well. As always, it's been an utter pleasure and um, I guess until next time it is. Thank you. If you liked our show, don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network. You can tune into them on the IVM podcast app, ivmpodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow IVM on social media. The handle is at ivmpodcasts on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And hey, if you'd like to dive into Takshashila's research on technology, strategy and economic affairs, check us out at our Twitter handle at takshashilainst or our website takshashila.org.in.